0: Hey what's up everybody, welcome back to season two of the Pop Anime Comics Lounge where I have with me somebody who's been involved in comics, the rock and roll scene, as well as continuing the women's rights movement in many different areas Trina Robbins so thank you for being on the podcast
1: hey I'm delighted how are you
0: I am wonderful and I am super excited for everything you've done and the fact that it's March and it's women's History Month so you've been involved in so many different facets from comics to rock and roll but I believe one of the first things you started with was science fiction during the 1950s how did you get involved in this area
1: well in those days not a whole lot of kids in my high school read science fiction in fact maybe two of us read science fiction it was considered weird in the 50s to read science fiction so i was a geek girl I was a geek girl in the 50s, and I discovered science fiction at 14, and it just, like, it opened a third eye in my forehead. It was so amazing. Concepts that I had never read before. Nowadays, everyone reads science fiction. There's a million science fiction movies. People are blasé, but it was amazing in those days. So, of course, I became a fan.
0: And what were some of the titles you were reading? Because, I mean, in the 1950s, science fiction was just starting to come out on the scene.
1: Well... I remember when I discovered Bradbury. It was incredible. It must have been like for born-again Christians when they discovered Jesus. That was how I felt about Bradbury. His concepts, for those days, they were just amazing. I mean, what if we come to Mars and they're all big-eyed and beautiful and good and we're the horrible ones? You know, our diseases kill them all off. That was an amazing concept in those days.
0: And that your involvement with science fiction took a major development when you became involved in fanzines.
1: I was very young and not a very good artist. And I did do some drawings for fanzines, which are not fabulous.
0: So how did you go about finding a fanzine? And what was that like, considering fanzines back in the 1950s were kind of how people communicated for the marvelous yes. internet?
1: I mean, in the pre-internet days, and they were usually mimeographed. That's the professional ones for mimeographed. The more amateur one had all sorts of bizarre methods of reproduction. Hectographing was one of them. I cannot explain to you how a hecto photograph work, but it produced maybe 25 copies. It was the best we could do, but was not the greatest means of communication. So it was all very amateur. And because it was also amateur, there was room for a teenage girl to do little drawings. And how
0: did you feel that your artwork, despite whether being good or bad, was being circulated, was included in all these things? Oh, it was very
1: exciting, of course. No, to see your work in print is just amazing, of course.
0: And now I want to shift to the 1960s and even the late 1950s. You became involved in rock and roll, and on that scene, what was it like, rock and roll coming up during that time?
1: Well, again, you know, another amazing discovery. You know, rock and roll had been popular music of the earlier 60s, had been really simple stuff meant for teenagers. But then the Beatles really started a revolution. That was 64 when those of us who were alive at the time all watched the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show and it changed our lives. then another revolution. We didn't know that popular music could be like that and of course it just got better because in their earliest days, the Beatles were still just singing simple love songs even though they were brilliant and the music was incredible, but they evolved and I was living in Los Angeles and my husband and I just got involved in the Sunset Strip rock and roll scene, which was a Again, I hate to keep using the word revolutionary, but it was. We saw the birds at their second performance at zero. And our minds were blown, if I may use a term of the period. And we became friends with them. My ex-husband was a writer and he wrote for the local underground newspaper, the LA Free Press, which was one of the first underground newspapers to come out. And I was designing clothes and I was making clothes for the rock stars. And we were very involved in the scene. It was an amazing...
0: And now your entire journey is very very different than other people in rock and roll where you were friends with Jim Morrison and the birds which you just mentioned and in particular David Crosby he
1: was our best friend in the bird we were friends with them all, he was our best friend and what
0: was it like knowing these guys at the start of their career
1: oh that's it, I'm sorry if I keep throwing that word revolutionary around, they were revolutionary and at the start of their career they were immediately great and they stayed great
0: and another thing that you became involved in was with Joni Mitchell as you are the first lady in her song Ladies of the Canyon. When did uh, you yeah first meet her and how did all this come about
1: that was winter of 1968 when I was already in New York and I went back to Los Angeles for a month and hung out with various old friends including David Crosby who was producing Joni's first album and again Joni was great immediately when someone's that good you know immediately they're great and it was incredibly sweet of her to put me in her song it was lovely of her
0: and now that song's been out there for over 40 years And it is a part of rock and roll history and music history. How do you feel that the song has lasted and that you're tied to it? I
1: like it. It's a lovely song.
0: And you mentioned it before as well. But you were designing clothes for some of these people, including David Crosby, Donovan. And Mama Cass from the Mamas and Papas.
1: Mama Cass couldn't find anything nice in her size. So I made her a couple of tent dresses that were very pretty. And you can see them on YouTube when they played on the Ed Sullivan show. She's wearing one of my dresses.
0: So having this ability, I mean, obviously Mama Cass is a big girl. And how did she come about finding you?
1: David brought her over one day. Both of them coming over on their motorcycle. What a
0: sight to see. It
1: was. I looked out the window and there they were on their motorcycles. And I said, it's David Crosby. And this large woman is with him on a motorcycle.
0: What was your reaction to that as well as just even having the opportunity to design for Mama Cass, Donovan, David Crosby, to name a few.
1: Cass Elliot was very friendly. I think that because she was such a big girl that there was always this fear that people would just look at her, dismiss her and go, oh, she's a fat girl. So she kind of fought that by being very friendly, by just sticking out her hand and saying, hi, I'm Cass Elliot. How are you? And you have to like her you couldn't judge her on her appearance you had to like her
0: and now while being involved in rock and roll and kind of transitioning into your comic world and what you've done in the comic world when did you start to transition from designing clothes and being in this rock and roll realm to shifting more to comics
1: well i had always drawn but i didn't know what to do with my art really i briefly went to art school teaching you to do huge wall-sized abstract, And that wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to draw real pictures of real people with pencil and paper. So that didn't work. Art school didn't work for me. But in the mid-60s, about 64, I guess, same period, Batman was on television and suddenly there was this new interest in pop art and in comics and at the same time the whole Marvel Renaissance was happening with their new characters like Spider-Man and Doctor Strange and Thor and they were so much more interesting than the old superheroes had been and college students and hippies and I was one of the hippies, we were reading them and we were going wow far out and it was far out, I'm going to throw out that word revolutionary again but it was I suddenly thought well these little drawings." I'm doing on paper It could be comics so I started experimenting with drawing comics and my first thing I tried to draw it didn't work at all because at the time the whole pop art thing it was superheroes and Batman and Doctor Strange and they were superheroes and I am not a superhero artist so I tried to do this superhero story and that didn't work at all I never finished it Then someone showed me a copy of the underground newspaper that was coming out of New York and that was called The East Village Other and they had comics which the free- Press had not had, really, although I had done one little four-panel comic strip for them. But there were comics in the East Village, and the thing is, they were comics that they reflected our lifestyle as hippies, rather than the whole straight superhero short hair thing. And I realized that you could do other comics, that you didn't have to do superheroes if you did comics. And that's really what started me off.
0: And do you feel that some of these comics that you were doing were really connected to the rock and roll scene? And how do you feel that the two complemented each other?
1: They were both revolutionary, that word. I'm sorry if I keep throwing it out. But they were both new concepts. And they didn't have anything to do with teenagers, unless the teenagers, of course, were teenage hippies. But they revolved around our new lifestyle, the counterculture. The comics and the new rock and roll scene revolved around the counterculture. And it was things that I could relate to.
0: And now, even though you're not a superhero artist, you, in 1969, were involved in designing the costume for Vampirella. And you're actually credited as part of the creation team of that. How did that come about, and what was that like, and what is it like knowing that this character is still around?
1: Well, Jim Warren was publishing a whole bunch of comic magazines. They were slick comic magazines in black and white, and they were quite advanced for their time. And he had really, really good artists, too. He had Spanish artists and artists from the Philippines. And I was showing him my portfolio. I was not ready for that. Those guys were incredible. Those Spanish artists were amazing. And I was definitely not ready for prime time. But he was very sweet. Jim is a dear guy. And he was letting me off very nicely and very politely when the phone rang. And it was Frank Frazetta. See, Jim had been planning this new magazine, Vampirella, which... Again, that word, revolutionary, because it starred a woman rather than all those guys' superheroes, and she would be introducing the stories. But I didn't know anything about that. I just heard Jim trying to explain to Frank Frazetta what he wanted, because Frank had designed something that Jim didn't like. I think it had been your basic bikini, but he wanted something much more original, and he was trying to explain it. And as he explained it, I just grabbed a piece of scrap paper from his desk and sketched the costume and showed it to him. And he said, oh, just a minute, there's a young lady here who knows exactly what I have in mind. And he put me on the phone and I described the costume to Frank Frazetta. And that's how it happened. Over the phone...
0: How do you feel that it's so bizarre, yet you're part of this legendary character and it happened in such a bizarre way? I don't
1: think that it's bizarre. There I was, and there he was on the other end of the phone line. I never met Frank in person, by the way. Never, ever. Just spoke to him on the phone. He was a very nice guy over the phone.
0: And how did you feel that your ability to design clothes and operate a clothing store, do all these rock and roll stars, clothing helped you really to capture what you wanted for Vampirella?
1: Well, it's pretty obvious. I was a clothing designer. I knew how to design a costume. I love clothes. Clothes are so much fun. Not everyone realizes what fun clothing is, but I love it.
0: And now when you were designing Vampirella's costume, did you feel any barriers or any challenges in designing it? Or was it just you knew exactly what was wanted and you just said, I'm going to do it regardless of how it looks, whether it's sexy or provocative or anything along those lines?
1: Oh, I just did it. I didn't feel any barriers. Of course not. I got the idea from what Jim was describing, and I drew it.
0: And now to talk about what you really pioneered, which is you're instrumental in the women's comic movement, which is very fitting for this month with Women's History Month. And you really started in 1970 in San Francisco, where you became involved. What was the environment like for women's creators in comics in the 1970s?
1: I came to San Francisco... I'd already been drawing comics for the East Village Other and for their comic tabloid, Gothic works, and had also already sold some comics through the mail to an underground comics anthology called Yellow Dog. So I was already on my way doing comics and I came to San Francisco in 1970 only to discover that it was a boys club. Somehow I had not been aware of that I had not realized it had not occurred to me that it was all these guys and me but it was. There was one other woman in San Francisco drawing comics and it was just us and a bunch of guys and the guys did not let us into their club. So we were basically ignored. And I had to draw, really. I had to produce comics. But I have to do them when I know they're going to be printed. There's no point in just sitting alone in my room and drawing a comic and then shelving it away somewhere. So someone showed me, again, I think it was the second issue of It Ain't Me Babe, which was the very first in America, woman's liberation newspaper in the country. In those days, we called it women's liberation where the feminists came along later. And I just basically went, this is for me. And I phoned them and we I met I met the staff at a B in in Golden Gate Park and we got along great and they love my stuff and I wound up drawing covers and comics on the back cover for them and because I was working with these women I felt like they had my back I felt like I was strong enough to actually produce an all-woman comic book and that's what I did it ain't me babe comics and that was the very first all-woman comic book in the world
0: and now there are a lot of people involved with this and there was actually a guy who was involved. To really help get this off, Ron Turner. Oh, of
1: course, our publisher. My God, we owe everything to Ron. He had just started publishing comics, and they were comics with a kind of political awareness. His first comic, I think it was called Slow Death, and it was about ecology. And I had heard that he was interested in doing a woman's liberation comic book, so I phoned him. And at that point, I had already put together most of the book before I even found a publisher for it. So I phoned him, and I said, I have a Woman's Liberation comic all put together. And he came right over with a check for $1,000, which in those days was an awful lot of money. And he took the work back with him and published it. So we owe everything to Ron, really, because he published the very first all-woman comic book. And how
0: was this received?
1: Women liked it for the most part. Some guys read it too. I think that the guys in the underground at the boys club, they knew it existed, but I think they just wrote it off as oh-ha, women stuff, you know, and didn't take it serious. Obviously.
0: And also around this time, worked on another book called Girl Fight Comics.
1: That was after the very, very first full-woman comic book was It Ain't Me, Babe. That was 1970. Girl Fight came out in 71.
0: And on Girl's Fight, you pretty much did everything. So what is it like really producing everything and really being the letterer, the inker, the artist?
1: Mainstream comics are done like an assembly line, as you know. But most indie comics and most graphic novels that are not mainstream you <laughs> are all the work of one person
0: and now we have to talk about women's comics and it really was just an amazing piece how did you become involved with this
1: well ron turner again back to ron it ain't me babe had done very well and had been reprinted and he wanted to do an ongoing title so patricia Moodian, who worked at last guest that was the publishing company she heard that what ron wanted to do and she called together nine other women and we all met at patty and form women's comics and that's interesting too of course because when i put together it ain't me babe it was very hard to find women to do comics i mean i had to search them out except willie Mendez, who was the other woman in san francisco who drew comics except for her we two were the only women so i had to find women who i knew could draw and say draw comics but in 1972 there were enough women there were 10 women ready to draw comics and that's how quickly it happened
0: and one of the stories that you drew and created was sort of risque at the time. It was Sandy Comes Out, which was the first ever comic strip featuring an out lesbian.
1: That's right. But I didn't think it was risque, and I still don't think it's risque. It was simply a story I wanted to tell. And at the time, it didn't occur to me that it was a verse. It was just a story I wanted to tell.
0: What was the inspiration for this? a true
1: story about my roommate sandy and I thought that her story was interesting and fun and I wrote it with sandy really with her approval and when it was finished I gave her the originals which I'm really a little sorry about that because I'm sorry to say that later I learned that sandy had died and have no idea what happened to the originals but I'm afraid they're gone forever
0: and obviously I mean this is personal you witnessed it it was about your roommate sandy what were the challenges you faced writing and really conveying this story
1: but I didn't there's any challenges. Really, I wrote the story and drew it, and there it was.
0: So how do you feel that this comic was received considering it was a first and it was aimed at women? How did that community receive it?
1: It was great. At that point... In time, there were a lot of women's bookstores, and they all carried our comics. They always carried women's comics. We had really good underground distribution. And then, of course, there were the head shops, which also no longer exist, and they carried underground comics, including women. So we did really well until the head shops started closing and the women's bookstores started closing. But that took 20 years before suddenly we had no distribution anymore.
0: And now you've been involved with women's comics for about 20 years.
1: Well, it lasted from 72 to 92.
0: How do you feel with your tenure and it lasting for this (laughs) 20 years? How do you feel that the women in comics movement has changed and women in comics have changed?
1: Oh, it's fantastic. There are more women drawing comics now than ever before. And they're so good. They're so talented. And their comics are so good. It's never been like this. And it certainly is just going to get better. There'll just be more and more women drawing comics because that's what happened when women saw it ain't me babe they went oh I can draw comics so two years later there were 10 of us and then when the first issue of women's came out we got submissions from women all over the country who saw our comic and went women drawing comics I want to do one too and now of course just huge and there are so many women drawing so many great comics.
0: And now we got to talk about the controversy here cuz you were heavily involved in, in women's comics and the feminist movement in comics. How do you feel about R. Crumb?
1: I would never deny that he's an incredible artist. He is. He's an incredible artist. But in the 70s and really through the 90s he was drawing incredibly misogynistic comics. Really vicious and violently misogynistic. depicted rape and dismemberment and murder as something very funny. And all I ever did really was object was to say rape and dismemberment and murder are not funny. And this is very hostile to women. And so of course, I object to it. And that got me such a bad reputation among some people who thought I was a censor. I'm not censoring. They don't understand that the First Amendment guarantees me the right to criticize something.
0: And R. Crumb's wife was also involved in underground comics and women's comics. How, if you had any interactions with her, how did that all play out?
1: She was part of the women's comics collective. She contributed to women's
0: comics. And so now, to get away from the controversy, in 1976, you wrote two comics, Trina's Woman and the other mm-hmm. being Wet Satin. How did these two mm-hmm. come about?
1: Dennis Kitchen sent me a letter. In those days, there was no email. He sent me a letter and he said, would you be interested in editing all-woman comics anthology for me, for Kitchen sake? That was his publisher. And I was already working with women's comic Collectives, so I didn't want to just do another clone of women's comics. And I thought, well, these guys are always... Sex. What about if we do sex? What about if we do women's sexual fantasies? So I came up with Wet Satin, and there were two beautiful issues. And the reason they were never more than two was because Dennis's printer refused to print the book. He said they were obscene. And of course, that's so interesting because Kitchen Sink also published a book called Bizarre Sex that was all by guys. And one of the issues had a cover that really was so very obscene that they couldn't show it on newsstands. It had to be on newsstands. With a piece of paper over the cover. So I asked, I said, well, what about wet satin? Look how obscene that is. I'm sorry, not wet satin, but bizarre said And the printer said, oh, well, that's satire, but your book isn't satire, it's pornography. So what could we do? And that's why it only had two issues.
0: And now to talk about some more obscene things, you also were involved. This is probably the only time I'm ever going to ever get to say this. But you're involved in tits and clits, as well as Bizarre Mm -hmm. Sex.
1: Well, tits and clits, which apparently we can say here, that was published by two women in Southern California. And it was very interesting. They actually came out with their book, with their comic, two weeks before women's comics. They were on the newsstands before women's comics. And we didn't even know each other at the time. But here we were, women in Southern California and women in Northern California, coming out with these all-women comics. So I really think there's something in the water, in California that it all did start here in California and they were basically reacting again to how the male underground cartoonist how they depicted sex and their attitude towards sex, and they just wanted to show a woman's attitude towards sex they wanted to show our part our version and that's what they were doing
0: and how do you feel that these four comics really helped to push the boundaries and affect what's going on today with comics well
1: course they did they were the first and women all over the country saw them and said look women can draw comics too and a lot of those women went on to draw comics you need something to give you that first push you need to see something that inspires you in my case it was seeing the comic in the East Village Other it made me think oh yeah that's what I want to do you have to have something that gives you that little push and that's what women's comics and it ain't me baby and tits and clips did it gave women that push
0: and now to back away from the erotica stuff and really the pushing the boundary things in that direction. You also worked on several underground anthologies, one of them being Eclipse and the sequel to Eclipse. How did these come about?
1: Now we're talking about the 80s and the black and white explosion. And there were all these independent publishers suddenly popping up and putting out these really nice comics in black and white (laughs) on good paper. And suddenly you could do a comic and it didn't have to be an underground comic on bad paper. You could do a comic, but it wasn't a superhero comic and it didn't have to be a superhero comic and the clips that was Catherine Ironwood and Dean Mullaney and they were wonderful and they were very accepting of me and they put out an anthology magazine Clips Comics and in their anthology magazine I serialized a 1919 novel by Sax Romer called Dope and Sax Romer for those who don't know was a really wonderful pulp writer very successful he's probably best known for having created Fu Manchu and this one from 1919 I just loved it it was really blood and thunder some of the characters were definitely racist but in 1919 they weren't racist so you have to see it from a 19 19 point of view, and I serialized it, and now, of course, as you probably know, it's been collected and is coming out as a graphic novel by a publisher called It's Alive and that should be out by summer if not spring.
0: And how do you feel that your work is now being collected into a graphic novel for the first time?
1: Oh, it's nice because you know, when I originally did it for Eclipse I had hoped that they would collect it because I did it with that in mind but unfortunately they went under. I did get to do all of the story and finish it but it was shortly after that that they did go under and that was because they were in Guerneville, which is around If you don't know California, you could place it around Mendocino. People know where Mendocino is, I think. And there was a terrible flood, and they were on the Russian River, and everything was stored in their basement, and the basement flooded, and that was the end of that. So they suffered enormous losses, really, and at that point, the big black and white explosion was ending anyway, so that was the end of Eclipse, so it never became a graphic novel, so now it is, and I'm very happy about that.
0: And also around this time with the black and white explosion, there was the big gay comics movement that was occurring and you got to work on an issue where howard Cruz's Wendell was featured in the exact same issue. What was that like?
1: In the beginning, when gay comics came out, and Howard was the first editor, and he sent letters out to everyone about gay comics, and that included me. And my first reaction was, I should have known he was gay, he's such a nice guy. And my second reaction was, I didn't feel that I had the right to submit anything because I was a heterosexual. It seemed wrong because it was for gay people. But then when Robert Tripto took over as editor, he invited me to submit stories and for me it was an enormous honor and that's my feelings about it it's interesting of course because i really was never quite accepted by the boys club but the gay community has always accepted me and welcomed me
0: that's really interesting that you felt that you didn't have a right yet they accepted you despite you being a heterosexual why do you think they were so open to everybody versus the boys club
1: well i don't think they would have been open to everybody i mean there were some guys who did comics i'm sure they would not have invited in that were just
0: homophobic stuff and now to jump to something that's a big jump but we're going to talk about it You had the opportunity after this to work on Misty from Star Comics, which was an imprint from Marvel, which they acquired, which was a new interpretation on Millie, the model.
1: It wasn't really (laughs) a new interpretation. It went further than Millie, the model. We went to the next generation. Misty was Millie, the model's niece. Millie was grown older now, living with her brother, who was Misty's father it was basically the next generation.
0: What was it like working with this comic and it was aimed more for children?
1: Yeah, I was aiming it at girls because there was nothing out there for girls. Everything was boys. Everything was superheroes. Everything was guys with big chins punching each other. And then because there was nothing out there for girls, girls of course were not reading comics because there was nothing there for them to read. I mean, it's circular, you know. But then the editors say, well, girls don't read comics. And of course they were not reading comics because there was nothing for them to read but they used to read comics in the days when there were comics that girls read so my feeling was let's do something for girls and that's what i did and
0: how do you feel that this has really helped to break that stereotype and really usher in more girls comics if at all
1: at the time because distribution was terrible. The dread comic book stores, all they wanted was superhero comics and an audience of 12-year-old boys or 30-year-old men who were still really 12-year-old boys inside. And you'd go into those stores and it was just wall-to-wall guys. And half the time the store smelled like old gym socks anyway. And girls, they might get, you know, as far as opening the door and looking inside. But that was it. It was so unwelcoming to females at the time. and they didn't want to carry girls' comics anyway. Again, another boys' club. They didn't want girls in their club. They would really underorder copies of Misty. And then when it sold out, they would breathe a sigh of relief. Phew, we got rid of that. And they would not reorder. So I used to get so many letters from little girls saying, I love Misty, but I have such a hard time finding it.
0: And now, you, your career took a very interesting turn in 1986, where you were the first woman to ever draw wonder woman
1: no i was not the first woman to ever draw wonder woman by any means ramona frayden drew wonder woman in 1970 for super friends
0: that i was not aware of
1: well you see that's why i tell people
0: that's very interesting but you did get the opportunity to draw wonder woman Wonder Woman is one of the core DC characters and one of the originals, for lack of a better word. What was it like for you to really draw her?
1: I was in heaven. I'm a big Wonder Woman fan. and was always, since a kid, a big Wonder Woman fan, so yeah, I couldn't have been happier.
0: And you drew a few stories with her, and one of the stories that you worked on, which was in the late 1990s, was with Colleen Doran. It yes. dealt with spousal abuse.
1: Yes, I'm very proud of that book. And Chrissy Marston, who is the grand granddaughter of William Moulton Marston, who created Wonder Woman, Christy Marston said that she felt that that book should be required reading in every high school. That's one of the most wonderful things anyone ever told me.
0: Now, how did that come out? Because that's obviously something extremely different. I don't think there's been anything like it in DC since.
1: Every And then I think DC likes to do something that makes a statement saying, look, we're good people, we do some good things. And I think that maybe they were due for something like that when my proposal came along. So they decided to do it.
0: And how do you feel that this book really changed Wonder Woman, either for other artists or overall for the character.
1: But it didn't really, it didn't change Wonder Woman. It was a standalone story. God, Colleen is so good. She did a gorgeous job on it, and it was a pleasure working with her, but it didn't change Wonder Woman. The thing about Wonder Woman, unfortunately, is that she's a creation of Penning on paper, and DC owns her, so she's literally a slave to whoever writes and draws her. So she's been drawn beautifully, or she's been done horribly by guys who took over and just Turned her into this hyper sexualized, you know, tiny little thong bikinis or guys who just really down you know, deep inside resent her anyway because she's such a strong woman. So they just turned her into all sorts of things like turning the Amazons into heartless killers. It depends on who's writing her, unfortunately. Right now, she's being written and drawn beautifully, so that's a good sign.
0: Just with the rebirth, they've taken Wonder Woman and they've begun to explore her sexuality in many ways. So, how do you feel that that direction is going? And that's really, I think, one of the first times they're exploring that element of her.
1: I love the direction it's going in. I mean, of course, an island full of women, of course they're going to fall in love with each other. Who else is there to fall in love with?
0: And how do you feel about the Wonder Woman film, if you have an opinion on it?
1: Oh, God, I can't wait to see it. I think Gal Gadot is perfect for Wonder Woman. She looks like Wonder Woman. I'm glad that they've got a Mediterranean for a change. Even Linda Carter, who we all loved Linda Carter and still do, but she had that cute little perky American nose. But Wonder Woman is Greek, for goodness sake she's mediterranean and gal gadot really looks like her
0: now you got to write another comic which was california girls which has elements of your life and where you live
1: after misty misty lasted six issues and then it was canceled and really jim shooter had only contracted me for six issues and i think his plan was to see if it went well they would do more but of course as i say since the bookstores the comic stores wouldn't carry it it didn't do well even the little girls adored it but after that i still wanted to do, especially because I had gotten so much fan mail from these little girls, I knew that I was doing something they loved, and there was nothing else out there for them. So I contacted Eclipse, as you know I've worked with, and we all got along great and they were very accepting. And I did California Girls for them, which was very similar, except that it was twins and they were in Southern California. But it was the same kind of, just stories of lighthearted adventures of girls and their friends. And that lasted eight issues, but it went through the same problem which was that comic book stores simply didn't carry it or under ordered and maybe two copies and when those sold out they didn't reorder and Dean, the publisher, who is the nicest guy in the world and I've worked with him since then, he simply said I don't mind not making a profit, but I can't lose money and I'm losing money on this and I understood completely he did the best he could
0: and as somebody who was trying to break this wall down with your comic how frustrating was that you were doing something and I guess the audience wasn't responding
1: well it was very frustrating and the audience was responding you have no idea how many big fat Manila envelopes full of fan mail I got from little girls they were responding but they couldn't find the book and the comic book stores wouldn't carry it it was very frustrating and
0: was was industry has changed with digital enormously yeah do you feel that if you were to do it now because of digital and even just the nature of people it's all changed
1: it's wonderful plus you know more and more comic book stores are operated by women and they're so girl friendly now and they don't smell like old gym socks anymore
0: And to speak about how the industry's changed, how do you feel what Marvel has done with their diversity?
1: Oh, I love it. I love it. I think that Marvel and DC both tend to be rather conservative, but even they, at a certain point, and Marvel did it first, and DC is kind of trying to catch up, but even they, at a certain point, a light bulb goes off, and they go, hey, we could be selling to girls. That's 52% of the population. We could be making even more money, and that's what they're doing.
0: And to talk about the third company, how do you feel about Image and what Image has done? They have changed
1: enormously too. You know, in the 80s, when you thought of Image, you thought of women with tiny little bad girl characters with I don't mean the characters were tiny, I mean their outfits, tiny little bikini outfits and breasts bigger than their heads and the broke back pose. But they've changed enormously. And there's a lot of really brilliant, creative, original stuff.
0: And now just to name a few other comics you've written that some people would recognize, which is the PowerPoint girls we've worked on zena the warrior princess macbeth yeah that was
1: fun too i've worked on titles that i really like i love Zena. i was such a big fan and the powerpuff girls are just brilliant they're so funny i've always worked on titles i like never worked on something i didn't like
0: and what other titles through the 2000s did you love working on
1: i don't think i've done that much for the mainstream, you just mentioned Zena and the Powerpuff Girls. And of course, I've written some Wonder Woman 77 stories and briefly heard a Wonder Woman story for sensation. God, I was in heaven because more than anything else, I just want to write Wonder Woman. I love her.
0: And what is it like to work on Wonder Woman 77 in that style of a book?
1: Oh, it's a lot of fun because it's a challenge because you're talking about 1977, or at least you're talking about the 70s. So what I have always done is writing something for Wonder Woman. In Seventy-seven is okay. What happened in the '70s? What was a major occurrence in the '70s? And the first one I did that was Jim Jones and the People's Temple. I think is what it was called. That horrible thing that happened. And I think it was '78. From whence you get the concept of drinking the Kool-Aid that he talked all his followers into drinking poison Kool-Aid. It was horrible and memorable. So I took the same story, except I turned the Reverend Jim Jones into an alien and took it from there. And the second one was of course about the Cold War I thought well what was happening then the Cold War and then also of course David Bowie and he had just died and I love David Bowie so I put in a character that I based on him
0: so when writing these do you write from the perspective of looking back on the 70s or do you look at the perspective of being in the 70s perspective
1: of being in the 70s of course because that's the idea of it that let's turn back the time and it's 1977
0: now of course and now I want to shift gears one more time to talk about the other side that you've done with comics because you are a historian and you've written several books (laughs) many. one of them being a century of women cartoonists
1: that was the second one that i wrote the first one was done i think in 85 or 86 with Catherine Ironwood it was published by Eclipse again that was wonderful people and it was called women and the comic and this was done before we had personal computers when computers were just some huge thing that took up an entire room and spewed out punch tickets but before we had the internet and it was very hard to do research because there was very little about these women and a lot of our information was wrong simply because our research sources were wrong so I corrected that with a Century Woman cartoonist published by Kitchen Sink. And I did two other books after that. The last one being Pretty in Ink, which I hope finally corrects everything. Because now I'm able to get more and more information on the internet. Each time I wrote a book, I was able to get more information.
0: And so what really is the impetus when you go and you say, I want to talk about this topic in women's comics? Because you've covered a lot of different subjects. One of the
1: things I've done is rediscover women who were so incredibly good and so successful in their time period. Period, but then were completely forgotten because the men who write histories of comics they just want to write about jack kirby and spider-man and the whole so basically my major discovery when doing all this research is that if you are not written about you are forgotten simple as that so these women had been forgotten because no one knew about them no one wrote about them, and you can't know about anything if you can't find it so i rediscovered them and now they're not forgotten anymore women like tarpe mills and Nell brinkley and lily renee who were also very good
0: and now i want to kind of touch on your latest book just pretty in ink which starts mm-hmm. with american comics starting in 1896 with rose o'neill yes
1: i found the first as far as we know the first comic by a woman maybe someone will discover an earlier one but so far no one has so it's generally recognized that until we find elsewhere that rose o'neill drew the first comic by a woman in 1896
0: how did you go about discovering this
1: now there is a story I knew from my previous research I knew that both Rose O'Neill and Grace Drayton had contributed to a magazine called Truth and there was a garage sale right around the corner from where I live and of all things he had some copies of Truth from the late 19th century I thought oh my god maybe I'll find something by Grace Drayton and Rose O'Neill in there so I bought them all at five dollars a copy and sure enough there was the strip by Rose Rose O'Neill in 1896. That's cosmic, right? But there it is right around the corner from me.
0: So having this, was it an instant realization that you have to create this book when you found this?
1: I think that shortly after that I was working on the book anyway that wasn't the cause of the book but then I had this wonderful new information
0: and now what is this obviously I mean we spoke about this book but what does this book go from the first women comic and where does it go all the way As up it to? ends in to
1: 2013 because that was when I was writing the book
0: and what does it exactly cover for those who are interested with that story now that you told us
1: well it covers all the women who were drawing comics really and discoveries about them like who did and there's one case with Grace Drake where there's a whole relationship going on, where her sister also did comics, and later her niece did comics within the family. Just discoveries like that.
0: And now, I mean, I could speak to you all day. You've done so much for the industry. We haven't probably touched on even one tenth of what you've done and your legacy, for lack of a better word. But how do you feel that the industry has changed in both diversity and acceptance of different people writing, in particular women? Oh,
1: it's wonderful really it's never been better I mean gender diversity and also racial diversity so that you can have a teenage Muslim superhero that's a pleasure and it's just getting better
0: and how do you feel about women artists and writers now really oh
1: they're so good all the women out there are so good the women's comics women were revolutionary and we were the first and we were groundbreaking but these women are better than any of us they're so good
0: now you've been involved since you were very young what piece of advice do you have for people who want to get involved in comics and in particular really girls who are kind of on that crossbreeding comics at the moment
1: meet your deadlines really if someone gives you a job and tells you when the deadline is meet your deadlines get that work in on time and that will give you a good reputation and people will hire you again maybe even if as a beginner you weren't really that good you were good enough but they were better people but they couldn't turn the work in on time, and you could. So they will hire you when they need someone, rather than the really, really talented artist who has a million excuses for being six months late on a project. Meet your deadlines.
0: And then finally, I'm going to give you an opportunity to promote anything you would like. Website, graphic novels, books currently out.
1: Well, I have four books coming out this year, which I happen to have a very strong Judeo-Christian work ethic, which is I always have to be working on a project or I don't feel that I'm worthwhile, that I have self-worth. But four books, even for me, is a bit excessive. But I do have four books coming out this year. One of them is Dope, the graphic novel collection of the comic from the 80s. One of them is called Babes in Arms, and that's part of my Women Cartoonist History series. It collects the work of four women who drew comics during the Golden Age, and their comics starred women, beautiful, courageous women who fought the Axis, fought the Nazis, and didn't need to be rescued by some guy so really their arms were pen and ink were fighting the war on paper and they were all really really good so that's babes in arms my memoir is coming out in 2017 and it's called Last Girl Standing and the last one my father came from a little village in what is now Belarus and he came to America at the age of 16 all by himself and he became a writer he wrote in Yiddish though he didn't write in English he wrote in Yiddish and in 1938 he published the book in Yiddish 1938 book published in Yiddish it couldn't possibly exist anymore but it does and my daughter found it on the Internet. She found it reprinted by Abe Books, and I bought copies. And of course, I can't read Yiddish, but I had it translated, and I realized that this is the makings of a graphic novel. It's all different chapters in which he basically is talking about the old life in the little Jewish villages, the little Yiddish villages. Think of Fiddler on the Roof. That's closest I can come. It's a way of life. Of course, they didn't know it was going to disappear with the Nazis, but it did. And so it's just this vanished way of life that he's writing about. And it's also very funny. So I took the translation and I adapted it into comic form. And I found different artists for each chapter, 12 chapters in all. And it's called a Minion Yidden, which translates into a bunch of Jews or the whole title A minion on Zachen which translates into A Bunch of Jews and Other Stuff. And that's coming out in April.
0: And do you have a website?
1: I do, but you know I don't keep it up. You can look me up on the website, but better yet to look me up on Facebook.
0: And do you have anything else you'd like to promote?
1: Oh I think pushing four books is enough.
0: As always, thank you for listening to this week's episode, and you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio, and anywhere else where you listen to your podcasts. And while you wait for next week's episode, you can check out popanimecomics.com for articles relating to anime, comics, and pop culture, as well as you can follow us on Twitter, at popanimecomics, for all updates regarding this podcast. Till next week, everybody, have a wonderful week.